one of the things that shapes us or makes American conspiracy theorizing kind of a basic part of our identity is that we do identify ourselves by defining the other. We're a nation of immigrants. Um, we look to who we don't see as American to define what it means to be American. So from the earliest days of, after the nation's founding, you know, we've had a revolving cast of villains, whether they were members of certain religions or races or cultures or creeds that were seen as an enemy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. Today, I'm speaking with Elizabeth Williamson, whose latest book is Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth, which looks back at the Sandy Hook massacre as a vector for misinformation. The Sandy Hook shooting took place in December of 2012, resulting in the murder of 20 children and six adult staff members. As a country, as a species, as a people, we should all aim to protect parents and the people who have survived a horrifying tragedy like this. But instead, the loved ones of those who were killed encountered a fresh hell, a wave of conspiracy theorists whose rampant speculation online eventually metastasized and became toxic. These people online did not believe that the Sandy Hook shooting occurred. They spread theories that it was staged, a way for the government to gain support for gun control. Often egged on by media personalities like Alex Jones, these theorists insisted that these could not be the parents of children who were murdered. They weren't behaving the way they thought a parent should. People online demanded that the parents of the deceased prove their children were dead. They doxed the parents, publishing their social security numbers and addresses online. They forced some of them into hiding or into nomadic lifestyles for fear of their personal safety. In Williamson's book, she takes a closer look at how some of this misinformation sprouted and spread online. She also draws a direct line between the conspiracies that arose in the wake of Sandy Hook and more recent elements like QAnon and the January 6th assault on the Capitol. Williamson's book is incredible. It's a monumental act of journalism, and it's an essential book for our times and for our country in particular. I wept several times while reading this book, astounded that we live in a society that would subject anyone to such compounding tragedies. I know it's not easy to listen to a podcast episode about a topic like the Sandy Hook shooting, but I think one of the things that makes this book so important is it is asking us not to look away. It's asking us to understand the pain that misinformation can cause, and it invites us to value the truth. That's why it's so important, and that's why I recommend it to everyone. Before we get to our conversation today, I want to start by thanking all of my patrons at patreon.com slash davechen. If you value the work I do, the conversations I have on Culturally Relevant, my work on YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, everywhere else, the best place to support that is by going to patreon.com slash davechen. Of course, you can also support this podcast for free just by sharing about this podcast on social media, leaving a review for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or by following this podcast on Twitter at CREVSHOW, that's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. Let's get to it. Elizabeth Williamson is a feature writer for The New York Times. She's previously worked as a reporter for The Wall Street Journal and The Washington Post. Her new book is Sandy Hook and the Battle for Truth. Here's my chat with Elizabeth Williamson. Elizabeth Williamson, thanks so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure, David. Thank you for inviting me. Let's talk about how it is you came to cover the aftermath of the Sandy Hook massacre. Sure. Um, so I did not cover the immediate aftermath of the shooting in 2012. I actually came to the story in the middle of 2018 
when um, the families of 10 Sandy Hook victims filed four def separate defamation lawsuits against Alex Jones of InfoWars um, for you know, years spent saying that Sandy Hook didn't happen and implicating the families of those who were killed as crisis actors and people who played a role in faking their own loved ones' deaths. Initially, when I was following it, um, you know, covering it for the New York Times, I was covering it as a very interesting test of the First Amendment's ability or, or the power of the First Amendment, as Alex Jones and other conspiracy theorists frequently claim, um, to protect their spreading of lies that were damaging vulnerable people, in this case, the Sandy Hook families. Um, but what quickly changed about this is that when I spoke with Lenny Posner, whose son Noah Posner was the youngest child killed at Sandy Hook, he has a technology background and he convinced me that this was a foundational story about the spread of false narratives and conspiracy theories and misinformation in our society. So I began to pursue what soon grew into a through line from Sandy Hook to Pizzagate to QAnon to Charlottesville to um, coronavirus myths to the 2020 election conspiracy theory theories that led to the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. Uh, Sandy Hook is a topic that's been covered fairly extensively, and I guess I'm curious uh, if there's something that you wanted your book to specifically speak to that you felt hadn't been covered before. Absolutely. So really, this book, Sandy Hook, is about the tragedy, but only as it establishes the baseline truth of what happened. The book is really about the aftermath and how Sandy Hook was a predictor, a kind of bellwether, as I say in the book, a portent of the world of lies and disinformation that we are immersed in today. And it was intended to be, and this is why the Sandy Hook families shared their stories with me, this terrible chapter of their lives, is because they wanted to send a warning to Americans that this kind of misinformation is spreading. It is now attaching itself to most major American events, um, certainly most high profile mass shootings, and that if nothing is done to try and stem the flow of this misinformation, um, it will be soon at a community near you. And really what January 6th showed us is that more and more people are willing to defend these mistruths and these false narratives with confrontation and with violence. And in the decade between Sandy Hook and the attack on the Capitol, um, you saw people more and more willing to do that. Yeah, that was one of the things that struck me was reading the book, uh, the idea that a tragedy like Sandy Hook has crisis actors or is a false flag operation. Um, that was very much a fringe belief at the time that Sandy Hook occurred. But now with every mass shooting that occurs, like people chime in almost immediately disbelieving it um, at a pretty large level. And I think you, you cite some statistics that like, uh, a significant percentage of Americans don't believe that Sandy Hook actually occurred. Um, so, and it is a problem that has gotten worse over time. So it seems like this is a book that you wanted to, to try and identify and potentially help fight against that problem. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So Joe Ushinsky, who is a terrific scholar of conspiracy theories at Miami university has said that today about one fifth of Americans believe that 
all high-profile mass shootings are faked. It's a staggering number, you know. It's it's not like one or two percent. It's like a, a huge, like p- possibly you meet them, you know, when you go to the grocery store or at your schools or at your workplaces. Um, and uh, and it's deeply upsetting, uh, and it obviously has led to really uh, upsetting consequences in the case of Sandy Hook. In the introduction to your book, you talk about how you it was very important to you that this book is not taking a position on gun control. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why that was important to you? Absolutely. So one of the situations that the Sandy Hook family members found themselves in um, was that they were often tended to people often tended to view them as a monolith that they had somehow um, similar views on just about every issue and in particular gun control. Um, in actual fact, you know, the Sandy Hook family members have the main thing they have in common is that they lost their loved ones to this singular tragedy. But they have a range of views on the gun policy debate um, and on the battle for new legislation. Um, and so I wanted to be respectful of that diversity of views that they have. And also the whole conspiracy theory is built around the idea that these individuals, these grieving people were somehow actors in the gun control debate, you know, that they were participating in a hoax in order to impose gun control on Americans. And this just absolutely isn't true. So I was trying to, you know, deprive conspiracy theorists of any further fodder for those claims. I know it won't be successful. It's a pretty ingrained theory but I wanted to not contribute to that. And also, like I said, to be respectful to the diversity of views that the survivors hold on the gun policy debate. The book is largely about how people reacted to the tragedy, right? Whether it be conspiracy theorists or just everyday Americans. And you describe people sending all kinds of things to the town Sandy Hook in the wake of the tragedy. Sometimes bizarre things like clothes, you know, as though it was like a hurricane. Um, can you talk about what you observed like in the immediate reaction to the same? I know you didn't cover it back then, but you talked to people who were there back then and got their stories. Um, so can you talk about like overall what your observation was on, on America's reaction to it and, and how you'd characterize it? Absolutely. So I described that in order to sort of set the stage for these were all the things that the Sandy Hook family members and Newtown in general were dealing with at the same time you started to see the conspiracy theorizing and the attacks by people who were denying that the shooting ever happened. So in the aftermath of Sandy Hook, of course, this happened around the winter holidays and people were devastated at the idea that this many children, 20 first graders, you know, so young, um, had been killed in this savage way, especially at the holidays. And so people just had this surge of generosity. They wanted to give money, certainly, but they also just wanted to send things. And because it was such a high profile tragedy and so, you know, devastating to people, people from around the world sent um, certainly cards and letters, songs, films, quilts, um, clothing, uh, appliances, Um, There was corporate uh, contributions, crates of Kleenex from Walmart, um, more bicycles, skateboards, and soccer and footballs than Newtown has children. 
68,000 teddy bears deposited either in person or shipped to Newtown. Um, candles, flowers, things piling up at every intersection where there were impromptu memorials. And this just became such a surge, such a tsunami of goods that the town didn't really know what to do with it. They were begging people, please, you know, confine your largesse to your community, give these things to needy people in your community. The new town was donating it across Connecticut to, to different charities and things, but it just grew into something that was an additional thing that the families and the town had to contend with. It strikes me that people want to do something and that is a very kind impulse, but that if you don't do it thoughtfully or if you don't do it with a deep understanding of what the actual needs are, it can become its own burden, right? Like your, your kindness can become a burden to people if you don't, if you aren't considered enough. Yes. And, and while, you know, many of the items that were said deeply moved the families, and I don't want to discount that, you know, they were extremely moved by, you know, when you think of elderly people who sent their first dolls to the children of Newtown, or people who wrote very personal letters or who sketched the children, um, you know, and presented those sketches to the families or did paintings. Families were very moved and touched by this outpouring. But probably the most corrosive thing that happened was people also raised money, but they didn't always raise money. I mean, 80 different charities sprung up in the aftermath of the shooting. Um, the primary source for people was the United Way of Western Connecticut, but the United Way has its own priorities and they collect money for the community at large. And so they became embroiled in a dispute, a very painful one with the families of the victims because they were raising money in the name of the Sandy Hook charity, but that money was not going directly to the families. Um, it was, you know, by its charter, the United Way cannot give money to individuals. They use their money for their own programs. And this became a real sticking point. And Sandy Hook actually became a kind of lesson in how to deliver one's generosity to a community after an event like this. And that's that the money really should go to the families. As Ken Feinberg, who was the arbitrator in this dispute and has worked with these charities going back to 9-11, said, no one sees the faces of these young children on TV and wants to give money to a local charity. What they want to do is to give money to those families to help them. I mean, you had families who missed work, who couldn't function, you know, who had a variety of expenses. And so this money now, in the aftermath of other mass tragedies, there are funds that have, um, that have come up, including one called the One Fund, that collects directly for the needs of the survivors. Yeah, and it just strikes me that it's important that in the wake of a tragedy, uh, people who want to help do so in a, in a careful way, basically, you know, and, and think, th think through the consequences of what that help might be. Yes, absolutely. How would you describe the origin of conspiracy theories as they relate to the Sandy Hook tragedy? So really, um, the main vector of Sandy Hook conspiracy theories after the shooting in 2012 was Alex Jones of InfoWars. You know, he had a big audience and it's only gotten bigger since. Um, within hours of the shooting, before the death toll was even known, he was starting to plant the seeds that this was 
a so-called false flag operation, you know, planned by the government as a pretext for confiscating Americans' firearms. And you could see him kind of come around to that in real time, you know, listening to a recording of his show, his InfoWars show, which is run on 100 radio stations and online. And people were calling in and saying, you know, Alex, tell us what this is. You know, isn't this, is this really, did this really happen? And kind of pushing him. And as the death toll went up, and I talked with um, someone very knowledgeable about uh, Alex Jones's career and his sort of progression, um, Dan Friesen, uh, who has a podcast in Chicago called Knowledge Bite and has really studied Alex Jones as a kind of archetype in our society. He said, you know, as the death toll started to climb, Alex Jones could recognize, as did people on both sides of the gun debate, that this would be a watershed moment in that debate. And so the killing of 20 first graders and six educators was going to be a real pivot point, or so people thought at the time. So after he knew that toll, that was when he embraced this theory, because at that point, he could see that this was going to be a way to fight back against any plans for additional legislation. And after that, he really did just run with it. And he did things like, you know, single out the family members by name as actors or as people who were participants in a fraud. And that was somewhere he had never really gone before. But Sandy Hook was a big moneymaker for him. His audience in the three years after doubled. So he had 50 million people who were tuning in and listening to him talk about Sandy Hook. And, you know, his business model is genius. He sells products that are geared toward the suspicions of his audience who are deeply distrustful of government. They're deeply distrustful of official narratives, the mainstream media. So he sells them, you know, um, ghost gun components that uh, don't have to be registered with the federal government or are, are not registered with the federal government, doomsday prepper merchandise for the end of times, um, and diet pills and, and sup diet supplements uh, for people who are distrustful of traditional medicine. So he sells these throughout his broadcasts, and his sales were surging as he spoke about Sandy Hook. It struck me that he was kind of, in some ways, a tragic figure because it wasn't even clear that he actually believed it was a false flag, but the uh, fact that it was going to be such a big moneymaker, that it was such a flashpoint, uh, meant that he couldn't resist it. That, that was kind of the, the sense that I got, was he was initially ambivalent about whether or not he should call it a false flag, because it is a horrifying tragedy. Um, and there was a part of his humanity that I think recognized that, but that ultimately it was too big to not take advantage of, was, was the sense that I got. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, except that I would not call him a tragic figure. I think he was purely Fair opportunistic. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this was something where he knew that, um, I mean, he became an actually much better known figure in the aftermath of Sandy Hook. It was kind of his entree to more mainstream programs. Piers Morgan had him on CNN um, when Piers Morgan did in the aftermath of Sandy Hook, a series of shows calling for additional gun legislation. He had Alex Jones on and Alex Jones went into a total theatrical meltdown, which then increased his profile um, and then he went on um, Howard Stern's show. And so he became more of a known name. I mean, he rode Sandy Hook and his his theories, although on CNN, 
they and on on Howard Stern's show and all the other mainstream media shows, they never talked about the fact that he had spread lies about Sandy Hook. They only talked about his opposition to additional gun legislation. So in that way, they really gave him a pass and lost the opportunity to call him out for what he was spreading on his show in those early days. Mm-hmm. Uh, good call out. Tragic it pr- makes it sound like there was something noble in there, but you're right. Uh, yeah, there he's always any... the victim, so yes, I don't like yes. to give him that. Totally yeah. fair, totally fair. Well, your book, uh, one of your central characters in the book is Lenny Posner, as you uh, alluded to earlier. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what aspects of Lenny's story um, strike you the most as you're kind of constructing this narrative. Absolutely. So Lenny was the person who really saw that the conspiracy theorizing around Sandy Hook was not a one-off. It wasn't even really entirely about the gun debate, that it was the beginning of what was going to become a regular feature of American life that denying that something happened would become a tactical move on the part of people, usually on the far right, but not entirely. I mean, we've seen this with the anti-vax, you know, that's a swath of people across the political spectrum who are vaccine um, fabulists. But um, he, he, Lenny really, because he had a technological background, because he had actually listened to Alex Jones's show in the past, traveling in his car between clients, he liked the, the intellectual exercise of conspiracy theorizing. He thought it was entertaining. Things about the moon landing, relatively harmless conspiracy theories, he found to be sort of entertaining. He's an iconoclastic person. And why not just think about things in a different way for a while um, and you know exercise your mind in that way? Um, that is a lot different than what Alex Jones did in the aftermath of Sandy Hook, as we already discussed, you know, targeting individual grieving people for abuse. Um, but he did, Lenny understood how social media algorithms spread this material. So if you embrace one conspiracy theory, soon your social media feed will be filled with others. He understood how the conspiracy theorists gather online. Uh, how they give credence to each other, how it becomes a source of an alternative to, in their minds, better identity. They become citizen journalists and private investigators. It's very glamorous to them. You know, what where they had been isolated, they now have a community. Uh, so he saw all this and and realized that this was going to be a way in which people would gather to deny the narratives around many events. Yeah. And he went on a crusade. He engaged directly with his harassers. He waged a yeah. PR campaign against social media networks um, and eventually has has basically succeeded in his quest to keep Sandy Hook misinformation off of the Internet. Um, it still can be found, but like largely it, it has been pushed out of the mainstream in many ways. And he now works directly with these social networks to take down this misinformation. Yeah. Uh, what are some things that you attribute to his success? So this was an incredibly long road for Lenny, and I am so admiring of all he has done because he really was in the beginning when he first noticed this material spreading online. And by the way, Noah's mother and Lenny's wife at the time, Veronique De La Rosa, was singled out because of an interview that she gave to CNN 
in which there was a glitch in the video and Alex Jones exploited that glitch, which actually his own staff made in downloading a copy of the Anders and Cooper interview to say that this was filmed in, in before a green screen in a CNN studio and that the interview was faked and that her reminiscences, reminiscences about Noah were by extension made up. Um, so Lenny saw this developing early on, and he really was alone in saying, I'm actually going to, in the beginning, uh, confront these people, but I'm going to treat them with respect because I understand what it's like to question official narratives. I will supply them with the records of Noah's life and death and show them through factual documents and, and you know supporting evidence that he lived, that he died that this happened. And he met them online and they were members of a big Facebook group at that time called Sandy Hook Hoax. Um, and he spent hours trying to convince them and just answering their questions. He treated them with respect and gave them an opportunity to ask him, you know, and to use his power as a grieving father to try and convince them. But what happened was the hardcore people who didn't want to give up on this, who were getting too much psychic and actual financial income out of this because they were raising money for their so-called investigations, they started to attack him. He was a threat. You know, anyone who intrudes with truth to these close-knit groups becomes a villain and a threat to, you know, everything they've built. But there was a group of women, most of them moms who had children around the age of the Sandy Hook victims, who started to chat with him and DM him on the side. And they were saying, you know, I think I believe you. You know, he was able to convince them. And they kind of peeled off into a separate Facebook group called Conspiracy Theorists Anonymous. He was able to convince them. And they became the core of the Honor Network, which is his nonprofit that tracks down misinformation, not only about Sandy Hook, although in those years it really was about that because there were thousands and thousands of these claims on, the, on social media channels. Um, but they were, became sort of the core um, group of volunteers that helped him in his quest because um, he couldn't get the social media companies to give him the time of day in the beginning he started to use copyright law. These people were taking images of the victims and using them in their hoax videos and on their websites. Well, the families owned that material. They were taking it off their Facebook pages and their social media feeds. And he was able to use copyright law to get that material taken down, thousands of pieces of content. That was the first tool in his toolbox. And then he eventually did get, he, he was able to publicly shame these companies, Facebook, Twitter, WordPress, which, you know, hosted the websites of a lot of these conspiracy theorists and get them to take action by calling them out, you know, in public through op-eds and interviews and just saying, you know, you need to do something about this. People are suffering from this and people are going to be injured or killed if you don't take down some of the, these falsehoods. Yeah. And there's certain maxims that I adhere to when I'm going about my business online, like don't read the comments, <laughs> don't right. engage with the comments. Right. And Lenny, Lenny didn't the believe comments. that. He's yeah. like, he's, he's, he went right into the comments, head first into the comments yep. in a way that it's like, God bless that man for even attempting that because yeah. it takes such a strong stomach to, to do that and to be called a liar and to be told that your son's murder didn't happen, but he did it. Yes. And he did it over the course of many years. 
uh, and he eventually attained some level of success in doing it uh, and taking this misinformation off the internet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really changed my opinion about uh, whether one should engage with people who are conspiracy theorists because he was able to make a difference. I am curious if your opinion at all was impacted uh, about how to deal with this kind of stuff, because I'm sure you encounter uh, this kind of, uh, these kind of accusations online all the time, especially after writing this book. Um, (laughs) Has watching Lenny's journey impacted how you approach this at all? Um, Well, as a journalist, I'm governed by the New York Times social media policy. So for me to be fighting online with people really wouldn't work. <laughs> I'd, be, <laughs> I'd be out of a job. Um, and, you know, and actually, I do find just in my work that engaging doesn't tend to yield the best results. Um, but that's me. And that's sort of specific to what I do. But what he was finding was, there was so much of this material. I mean, social media in 2013, 2014, 2015, even into 2016, was just teeming with false claims about Sandy Hook. And he was compiling the URLs and getting this stuff taken down using the copyright law. Well, when these people discovered that their material was being, because what would happen is someone like YouTube they wouldn't just take down a single video, they'd just nuke that person's entire channel. Um, and so these people were irate. So they started threatening him and and stalking him and trying to find out where he lived and putting that online. So he ended up moving over the course of the last 10 years about a dozen times, always trying to keep one step ahead. Um, but he really felt it was important, David, because he thought that what would happen. And in those years, if you Googled Sandy Hook, the lies would be the first result, not down the line. It, and he felt like if he didn't go after this material, certainly the social media companies were not doing it. So that if you Googled the names of you know, the, the individual victims or the tragedy itself, the lies would come to the top and the legacies of people like Noah and all the victims and the true story of what happened that day would disappear it would fade from the internet and the liars would win. And that was what drove him. And so did he engage? Absolutely. Did it cost him dearly for engaging? Absolutely. But what he did was he accomplished, it is very rare to go on now and type in Sandy Hook and have hoax material rise to the top. He has succeeded in getting absolute, you know, control over that phenomenon. Um, and, you know, good on him because not many people would have the stomach for that fight. And for years, that information remained on those sites. Um, the, the incentives of social media networks were not aligned with truth, right? No. Um, it was, it only, was all about engagement. It, it, all about engagement. And if you can say, hey, Sandy Hook might be fake, um, that gets a ton of engagement. People are interested. It leads them to other videos and so on. And they go down a rat hole. Um, it was only when the PR became too damaging, uh, that they really acted right. Like it was only when Lenny Posner was out there saying like, Hey, you're allowing this information to be online and it's horrifying and terrible and is able to get media attention from people such as yourself that they really started to take this down. Is that right? He would do op-eds, you know, calling Mark Zuckerberg out by name saying, Oh, you just mentioned that people who deny the Holocaust are expressing a different opinion. What about people who say, you know, my son was never killed at Sandy Hook? And 
you know, you're giving more protection to Holocaust deniers than you are to the families of murdered children and educators. Um, and he was not afraid to sort of get right in these company and these titans' faces and say, your creations are taking a significant toll on vulnerable human beings and just remind them of that. In your book, you talk about how conspiracy theorists can come from all walks of life. Like it's it's not just quote unquote, the type of people you'd think. There's people who have PhDs and work at public universities. Um, all types of different people become conspiracy theorists. Were there any sort of common elements you felt were there uh, for the group of people that engage in this theorizing online? Yes. So really what I learned and you know what the, the researchers that I interviewed for the book taught me was that Conspiracy theorizing and someone's um, proclivity toward doing it has a lot more to do with psychology than it does with politics. So what people get from this as, and, and Lenny has corrected me on this, I would say that they get, you know, psychic income from, from this. And he was saying, yes, but actually more than that, they get an entirely new identity. So someone like Tony Mead, who is a house mover in Southern Florida, who set up, well, it didn't set up, but he was one of the first and most successful administrators of the Sandy Hook Hoax Facebook page. Hundreds of people every night chatting for hours, sharing these theories. Well, Tony Mead metamorphosed from a house mover in Florida to a citizen journalist. He founded an organization called Independent Media Solidarity. They got together, they made a film saying, you know, that, that was, we need to talk about Sandy Hook. You know, they, they, he developed an entirely new persona. People gathered online, they built each other up, they embroidered their theories. You know, some of the first Facebook groups were about, you know, quilting or knitting. And that's what I think about when I think about the Sandy Hook hoax group. They all gathered at night, they all sat around, they embroidered their theories, they made this big crazy quilt, they shared it, they built each other up. They chatted with each other. They were friends. They became, you know, I call them this sort of ragtag army, you know, um, inside a Facebook fortress, uh, impervious to intrusions of truth. You know, they, they really got a lot of community out of this. And that's why it's so hard for people to give this up. Um, as personalities, they, they were conspiratorially minded. Most of them jumped from one hoax to the next to the next. They doubted not some official narratives, because let's face it, the government does lie to us sometimes. There are cover-ups. So it's good to doubt official narratives if they don't ring true to you. But the difference with them is that they doubted every official narrative and they embraced every conspiracy theory. And they did that online and they did it together. So um, they just got a tremendous amount out of that. So that really is what unites them. They like to have a sense of superior knowledge. There's a certain level of narcissism in this, you know, a smugness. If you interview them, you know, you're kind of like the poor sheep who don't really have, you know, you haven't seen the light. You don't really know what they know. Um, so it is a personality type and, and it is a lot of, you know, psychosocial um, income that they get from doing it. Yeah, it becomes a part of their identity. And not only that, but uh, attempting to leave the group is incredibly painful. 
because they have now derived an enormous amount of meaning and benefit from being part of this group that when doubts creep in, they are they then become the victim. They become attacked at that point and they don't want to. They don't want to be that. Um, and so there's an enormous toll to leaving. It, it reminded me actually of like cults or religions basically of like how there's all this social cost to leaving. Um, do you have, uh, did you learn anything about how people can be deprogrammed that you think might be worth sharing? Um, so I do cover one uh, gent who was a Sandy Hook hoaxer who really tangled with Lenny um, named Doug McGuire. And he just had a very interesting and compelling story to me because when he started to disagree with the Sandy Hook hoax people, people like Tony Mead, they set someone up to kind of befriend him. He was in the middle of a really difficult personal you know, trial in that he and his wife had split. Um, he had lost custody of his son. Um, they set up a person to, um, as someone who could help him, who, you know, he thought was a lawyer or something. Um, and she ended up sort of taking all of his social media accounts, um, you know, stealing his identity, essentially. And, you know, this was a guy who had no work. He was living in his car. Um, these people were his only social group at that point. Um and they tried to destroy his life. And they came really close because he dared to defy them and to say that what they were doing was wrong. And Lenny ended up helping him. And he became one of his volunteers um, in the Honor Network because he understood how it all worked and he knew who a lot of the players were. Um, but he was a rare case. Most of these people are extremely difficult to dissuade, um, even if they are attacked by the group. Although being attacked by the group like that for raising just, you know, even partial doubts um, does tend to be one way in which people do peel away. I think one of the questions people have, someone like myself has reading this book, is, um, is there any way that I can help make things better in terms of the information environment? As you write in the book, things have gotten worse since Sandy Hook. Um, what are the things you would encourage people to do, to think about? Uh, what are the things you hope will happen in the wake of a book like this being published? Sure. Um, it's actually a more hopeful picture than what we have been talking about. I mean, that is sort of the impact and how things evolve. But the fact that you're talking to me right now is helping. You know, there is a lot of conversation around misinformation and disinformation. As you and I are speaking together, David, the January 6th committee hearings are taking place and people are airing these false theories about the election in 2020 and what former President Trump was putting out there. And, you know, the fact that and they're saying day after day in witness after witness, people saying, this is false. This never happened. This is why he pursued it. These are the nefarious things that were being done to, to swing the election, you know, a, a legitimate American election to overturn it. Um, you know, every day someone is saying, look, these are the costs. This is the threat to our democracy posed by the flow and the spread and the embrace of disinformation, you know, our flirtation with lies in the political space. So the fact that so many people are talking about this has inspired a lot of study, um, a lot of ideas for solutions. Um, they're talking about it in Congress. You know, there are some very interesting ways to hold social media, uh, you know, policy ideas for holding social media companies to account for 
uh, spreading this material to people and for the harms that's created. Uh, I think these are all great conversations, way overdue, but you know, really productive. Um, there is a lot of research being done about individuals, you know, trying to to inoculate people who are likely to embrace these theories um, through certain, you know, games that they can play where they can encounter conspiracy theories, come up with them and realize how the sausage is made. And then when they see them online, be less likely to spread them and more likely to report them. So there's a lot of work being done. And I think this was, you know, inspired by the realization over the last 10 years that this is spreading and that this is metastasizing to, you know, throughout our civic life. Yeah. And I think that uh, what your book encourages us to do is just to be aware of that, to be able to identify it, to call it out. And if you have the stomach for it, um, do battle with these people. Um, yeah. You know, stand also, for the truth. You know, the old fashioned Call your member of Congress. Tell them how much this concerns you, how important this is. Um, you know, vote for people who don't embrace these election lies. And I'm not trying to be political here. I'm talking about people who, you know, are supportive of, you know, a free and fair and fairly decided election, not people who are flirting with people who would destabilize our democracy in service to these lies. I mean, that isn't, that is not a political stance. And, you know, to see this, it, should, through, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't, it be. shouldn't be to see it through the lens of politics is disheartening because in actual fact, this was some, you know, the, the election was not stolen. I mean, there are people across the political spectrum who know this and have said this and have proven this. So, you know, I think, Letting your elected representatives know that you value, you know, an inquiry into this, that it's important that this not happen again. Um, and, you know, and holding those members, even if you did vote for them, letting them know that you don't appreciate their embrace of these lies, I think is really important. Whether you are Democrat or Republican, you know, this is outside politics, as I was saying earlier. This is something that is uniquely corrosive to our way of life. Speaking of uniqueness, reading your book, it feels to me that everything that happened in it in some ways feels distinctly American to me. And you actually talk a little bit about this, about how like there's something distinctly American about this culture of conspiracy theory theorizing. Uh, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that and, and why you think like America specifically uh, might be vulnerable to this kind of stuff. Sure. So, you know, going back to the 60s when Richard Hofstadter, you know, the historian published, you know, the paranoid style of American politics, um, he was saying that one of the things that shapes us or, you know, um, makes American conspiracy theorizing kind of a basic part of our identity is that we do identify ourselves by defining the other. We're a nation of immigrants. Um, we look to who we don't see as American to define what it means to be American. So from the earliest days of, after the nation's founding, you know, we've had a revolving cast of villains, whether they were members of certain religions or races or cultures or creeds that were seen as an enemy. And it was this, you know, American way by some, not all, of course, but a way of you know, defining well who we are by saying who we're not. Um, so that was part of you know what 
what sort of got Americans down the path of conspiracy theorizing. It was a t- an attempt to assert an identity. And you do see this, you know, in ancient, you know, around the world, you know, great replacement theory is an expression of white supremacy. It's also an expression of fear that white Christians will be supplanted by people of other colors and faiths. Um, it's wrong. It's been proven wrong for centuries. It's um, it's racist. It's bigoted. It's you know all of those things, but it persists. And sadly, it's being fanned by people who should know better. Whether you're talking about Tucker Carlson on Fox News or you're talking about members of Congress who campaign on these themes. It's a very dangerous trope that's been responsible for a lot of injury and death over the ages, and it's being encouraged by some people who should know better and are deploying it in the name of politics. Final question, Elizabeth, uh, which is, you obviously have seen how dangerous some of these people can be and some of the tactics that they use. Um and I'm curious, like, how you think about that threat to yourself, just as a person who's writing this story. Like, um, was it a risk you were willing to take, or does it bother you at all to think that you know you might become a target of these people's attacks? I'm just curious how you think about it. So I'm not thinking about that at all, and I'll tell you why. Um, you know, the Sandy Hook families trusted me with their story because. They believe that change is possible. After everything that they've been through, they still believe that if enough people raise their voices, that their country, that their fellow Americans will, will help them and, and help achieve some change that would benefit not only them, of course, and not only vulnerable people or victims of mass tragedy, but all of us, because this has become so widespread. So I just feel like they have been much more targeted than me and in a much more vulnerable place than I am in. And so if they're willing to put their faith in the system and they're willing to push and and share their stories, I'm just privileged. I'm beyond honored to be able to tell their story and, and to try and you know call more attention to this phenomenon because I think that will help all of us. Well, we are all honored um, by your work, that you've put this work into um, telling their stories. I'm honored that you've chosen to speak with me today. Uh, Elizabeth Williamson is a feature writer for The New York Times. She's previously worked as a reporter for The Wall Street Journal and The Washington Post. Her new book is Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. Elizabeth Williamson, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Thank you, David. That's it for our conversation today. I am so grateful to Elizabeth Williamson for sharing about her experiences and her reporting. It is so important. And again, the book is Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. Do check it out. I want to thank my executive producer patrons at patreon.com slash Dave Chen, Kevin Sow, Ian, Stephen Miller, Sid Yadav, Steve Austin, Kwang Yu Liu, Dan Flanagan, Jeff Evans, and Mark C. Warner. 
Thanks to those folks and all the fine folks over at patreon.com slash Dave Chen making this podcast possible. This podcast was edited and produced by me, David Chen, and it was powered by Simplecast. Check out simplecast.com for a great podcast management and analytics solution. I also want to call out my Decoding Westworld podcast is coming back. Weekly recaps of Decoding Westworld. Check them out at decodingwestworld.com. More to come about that show. But in the meantime, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you later for another episode of Culturally Relevant.